in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Dustin Melbardis, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Brian Fry. Brian, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you? I am very good. Uh, we had a absolutely lovely 98-degree day down here in Texas. When we have just double digits, that is a paradise day. We are also very lucky because we have a return guest. We have someone who's becoming quite a popular person around the Retro Movie Roundtable. Your friend and mine, let's say hello again to, from Lexington, Kentucky, special guest Lizzie Haynes. How are you? Hey there. Thanks, guys, for having me back. Happy to be here. How are things in Big Blue Nation? They are great. They are fantastic. Today was a little rainy, but I am, I'm basic. I'm as basic as it gets. So to me, the second it hits September 1st, I start whipping out the Vitamix and making soup. And that's exactly what I did. Oh, I had tomato soup and grilled cheese for dinner. It was fantastic. That sounds delicious. I, 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 I think I've got to ask now, have you had a pumpkin spice latte yet? You know, I will say I'm not that basic. I do. Oh, okay. I think the pumpkin spice is too much for me. I will go to Starbucks and ask for a pump, but I can't ha- handle like the actual pumpkin spice latte. It's way too strong for me. That's fair. But everything else, like fall, you know, if you caught me in 2009 on college campus, I would definitely be wearing Uggs, North Face, you know, the whole nine. Are you doing the brown boots, <laughs> the blue denim, the cream and brown tones up top with the cream colored hat as well, like all of the brunch ladies? <laughs> Doesn't it have Am to I... be like the, the excessively turtlenecked turtleneck? I, yes, I think so. Or maybe a mock. I don't know. I am not, but I actually know one of the people that's in that picture. <laughs> you know, wow, the famous one. You're talking about she's from Lexington. Yeah. <laughs> Lexington, more like Basington. Well, uh, we're going to cover a, a fine. We just lost of all of our downloads from the greater <laughs> Kentucky area. That's all right. I'm, hopefully, we still have Louisville. Today's movie is a revenge flick. So, Lizzie, what is your favorite revenge movie? You know, my favorite revenge movie. I I feel like this isn't a very popular answer because I. People sleep on this movie, but I love The Other Woman. That came out probably about four or five years ago. And I think it's just, I mean, it's a formula that's been done before, but I think that Cameron Diaz, Leslie Mann, and Kate Upton together, they were so great. And of course, you've got Jamie Lannister. I don't know his actual name. It doesn't Costa even matter Wilder. if you're I Jamie remember. Lannister, yeah. but... I'm so proud of you uh, for pronouncing that correctly because I would have butchered the heck out of it. I've never been able to pronounce his name. We each have our own strengths. I, I, Lizzie, I'm willing to say that I know that you're thinking that was like four or five years ago. I'm thinking it's more like 10. No way! Oh gosh, I'm feeling really old right now. It was so good. That was so adorable. And honestly, I, I played this game with Brian and Russell in the last 
uh, episode that I had done with them on The Killers where talk about this game that I play with my friends sometime of like if one movie had been made, would would like a future movie exist? And I think that the other woman definitely falls in that category. It's been done before, but it's they perfected it. And sometimes the you know the similar movies come out in the exact same year. Um, I'm thinking of that. Right. We had the Justin That's Timberlake right. and Mila Kunis version, like the no strings attached, and then oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just friends. Just, no, yes. there, there's the best example ever, which was Armageddon and Deep Impact. <laughs> right, hundred yeah. percent. Did you go see yes. the big scary meteor movie? Uh, which one? Which one? Brian, what about uh, you? Your your top revenge flick? Uh, I had a really hard time with this one. I am gonna have to like hunker down with a cult campy one of mine, which will likely end up being a dealer's choice at some point. With okay. luck, lucky number eleven. Oh, uh, ooh, that's a great one. It is so a great I, one. Yeah, I was like, I, I've got to go with this one, but I mean, you've got John Wick in there, Gladiator, Count of Monte Cristo, The Northman. I mean, V for Vendetta. I just, I was like, <laughs> ah, ah, I can't pick. Why are you making me pick? No, it, it's good to be able to get out a list. And Glizzy, you didn't, you didn't get a list. You got one choice. But if anything else pops into your head, you can say another one. <laughs> Brian, you actually said mine. Uh, well, you said you were on the same train of thought that I was, which is it shouldn't be that big of a surprise. There is an entire global blockbuster series about a guy named John Wick that I think is pretty rad. And I've been loving to go back to the theaters for those movies. I do think uh, one and two are very, very good. And it doesn't matter if the quality starts to fall off at all. I'm still going to go see them. But as far as narrowing it down, I had to choose between Mad Max Fury Road and Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2. And I'm going to go with Kill Bill. Oh, yeah. Those classic. Classic. And I think with revenge, you have to think about, well, somebody slighted me or somebody slighted my family or someone uh, hurt someone close to me. But as far as someone tried to kill me and surprise, I'm not dead. I'm coming back. That's about as good of a revenge you can get. Yes, I I agree. I, I still think the thing that resonates the most with me about John Wick is we're now... At an astronomical body count after three movies, a fourth is on its way, and it all started with him killing his dog. Kudos to you, John Wick. I, you know, if someone ever messed with my dog, I'd hunt him down too. Keep it going, man. Agreed. Absolutely. Well said. Getting back to more recent times, what's the last movie that you saw, Lizzie? So I went with a friend of mine to go see Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what to expect. I, to me, the it felt like an Agatha Christie novel meets modern day TikTok. And I got to say that it was pretty spot on. <laughs> like the trailer <laughs> kind of really perfectly uh, encapsulated both things. And I, I got to say, I loved it. It was like I was entertained the entire time. It was awesome. That's uh, what a great description because it really helps me uh, in no way. If you're going to try to pull my Agatha Christie knowledge and my TikTok knowledge and put them together, I'm still lost in space. I do not know. Ryan, what's the last movie you saw? Uh, I actually watched this this afternoon. I saw uh, We're All Going to the World's Fair. Uh, it's this year, I believe. It's a Sundance film. It's a pseudo-horror movie. Um, I would call it equal. I, I'd say it's The Ring meets TikTok in a way. This girl takes this this challenge, nice. this online challenge called you know, "We're All Going to the World's Fair" and blinking lights, and it's a very psychological, you know, 
Blair Witchy style movie. It's all basically filmed via her webcam and the videos she's ma- uh, making. And it's a little bit of uh, maybe catfishing going on in there as she's being helped through this online experience with an older guy. The older guy ends up kind of being the voice of sanity. I, I don't know. It was a crazy movie. I wouldn't call it horror. There wasn't anything really scary about it. But it kind of takes you into a, a headspace of children who get a very liberal, open access to the web. And especially over the course of a time like COVID or something where they have no other interactions with the outside world, what effects that can actually have on their psyche. So th- there's, you know, there's, there's still plenty of, uh, of dark thought to this film. Well, I almost feel like I just paid for you. That was uh, yeah. Well, it sounds interesting. It sounds like it falls closer to like thriller, and I do I do like the idea that um, it is addressing the inescapable digital impact on youth of today, really everybody of today. I would well, I, I would also say that if you try it out, you have to be ready for an almost two thousand and one space odyssey amount of uh, long silences. Sign me up. Ooh. Well, um, the last movie I saw was, uh, I had actually been on a little Kurt Russell kick this past weekend, and uh, I had forgotten that he was in Stargate. So uh, I watched it for the first time since the 90s, hadn't seen it since it came out, and I was making the argument that I think Kurt Russell may be our most underrated American actor. I don't know, and we don't have time to talk about that today, but I needed to revisit Stargate, thought it was awesome. But before James Spader, too. Spader, yeah. My favorite character in The Office, Robert California. Although, he's not the first person I think of when I think of Spader. Uh, Tonight. Boston Legal. Boston Legal. Tonight. Lizzie, would you tell us what movie we're covering tonight? We are going to be covering the first Wives Club. And it's the first first Wives Club. uh, And I'm glad I got the right first Wives Club because I believe they remade this movie just a couple years ago, which disqualifies it. From the Retro Movie Roundtable, this is from 1996, starring Bette Midler, Goldie Hawn, Diane Keaton, Maggie Smith, Dan Hedaya, Bronson Pinchot, and Marcia Gay Harden. The budget for this movie was $26 million, and it quadrupled its budget. This grossed $105 million, placing it 11th in the box office that year, just behind A Time to Kill and just ahead of Phenomenon. The number one movie that year was Independence Day. You want to hear some cool cats talk about that? Check the episode from just two months ago. IMDb gives this a 6.4. And on Rotten Tomatoes, we've got our critics giving this a 50%. So critics have something to say about this. Audience scores it higher at 68%. Now, we have three leading ladies who are no strangers to award wins and nominations. This particular movie gets a nominee for Best Original Music Score from the composer Mark Shaman. It does win a National Board of Review Award, which sounds like some AAA thing, uh, for Best Acting by an Ensemble. And then it it got nominated for Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress. That would be Best Actress for Bette Midler, who, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't seen this movie, you'll understand why that is. Uh, Nominated, but no wins. Now, Lizzie, you're the one that pitched this movie up to us. I have to imagine you've seen this before. Yes, I've seen this movie many times. First time I saw this movie was with my mom, very young. I would say I was about 11 or 12, I suppose, when I first watched it, excuse me. And 
I thought it was cute. It was fun. But everything just flew right above my head. All of the humor. And I didn't understand any of it. Understandable. Uh, I watched it again uh, when I was in college. And it, I would say, almost had more of the same effect on me where I loved it. I understood the humor. I understood that it was about this sisterhood. But a lot of the struggles that they were facing went completely over my head. And now I like revisiting this movie as an adult and as a mom and a wife myself. It completely puts a totally different spin on the dynamic that I have with the characters. And honestly, to me, this just feels like such a classic. And these three women are like the juggernauts of the 90s. And it's just such a fun watch. So I'm really glad that you guys are going on this ride with me. I love it. (laughs) We are coming along. Uh, Brian, what about you? Had you seen this movie before? I had not. This This was a first time go for me. What uh, did you have? This is actually a first time go for me as well. What were your expectations coming in tonight, Brian? I didn't really have any. Um, I did have a minor heart attack about uh, two minutes ago when you said that there were two of these. And I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, I watched the wrong one. But no, I didn't. I watched the correct one. So it's uh, I, I was seriously there was a minute there where I was like, this is it. This is this is going to be my mistake of the evening. <laughs> Is I have in fact watched the wrong one. I have I've made that mistake before. Only it was in a conversation like a day or two before the recording was happening. My expectations were off because sometimes with movie titles, you you aren't paying that close attention. So I think what I must have been thinking was like First Wives Club. Um, is that going to be like First Wife, like First Lady? Are we talking about like the first lady of the United States of America? Are these going to be all <laughs> president's oh. wives? No, that can't be it. That's that's definitely not it. First wives club. Well, first, how important of a modifier is that? You learn pretty soon about sort of the the nature, the culture in terms of marriages, what it means to be a first wife. And if you don't know that, you got to learn it. Otherwise, this particular movie I would say potentially misses its mark or its target audience. Wouldn't you say, Lizzie, about what it is to be a first wife? Yes, absolutely. I think that nobody nobody wants to necessarily be a first wife, mm-hmm. but I think it reality of the society that we live in. You know, if you look at the statistics with marriage, it's you know we want all marriages to work, but not all of them do. And I think that it's it's an interesting. It's that trope that I think every single woman is afraid of. And I think this movie really is able to capitalize on that. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't necessarily say every woman, to be completely fair. Every woman but I that think pursues that marriage. Yes, but I think a lot of women do have that fear of saying, I'm going to pour my heart and my soul and sacrifice my uh, my time, my body, and all of the things that go into building a family and a life with someone mm-hmm. and – Um, And then somewhere along the line, they're going to make the decision to throw that away, not put in uh, and and stop committing to to putting in the work to build this life together. I think that that's a fear that a lot of people have, specifically a lot of women have. And this movie is really able to capitalize on that fear, but in a way that makes it feel fun and light and also kind of creates this uplifting story at the end as well, where you can really kind of reclaim that. You can't take and or someone can't take anything away from you unless you give it to them. And that, you know, true marriages are really about partnership. 
Well, yeah. And we're not talking about the movie yet. We were really just talking about the, the culture of like first wives. I think I remember two stories come to mind. I'm taking the role of Brian here where I'm just going to go off on a couple tangents. Uh, the, the first one is that like I've definitely heard the joke before like uh, you know young couple gets back from the honeymoon you know guy says let me introduce you to my first wife and that's oh, like it's yes. technically true but you know that like the joke is that uh, this, this is a starter wife that's the more pejorative yes. term right uh, when you think about your experiences as you grow up a lot of them are like live and learn you had to have these experiences in order to learn from them to grow from them but I think the potentially we'll call it the taboo about American culture in particular is marriage, if it doesn't work out, is one of the hardest things to admit or even to come close to using the word like failure, like a failed marriage. It's very hard inside your own head and also just uh, culturally with the people you talk to, to explain it in a way to be like, oh, yeah, this wasn't working. And to not look at that time, whether that was the time married or the time courting, that time, it's the, there's a fear of losing it or having that time feel wasted. And I think we see that a lot with our characters tonight. Brian, you, this was a first time watch for you, uh, but you know that it came out in 96. I'm going to ask this question to both of you before we throw to our ad break. I'm not going to ask, does it hold up? I'm going to ask, how well do you think it holds up? Are we going on like a numeric scale here? Do you want like a one out of five or... Um... I mean, if we're going to go on a, yeah, let's do one out of five. Um, I think it's, it's dated. I'd say two. Um, mm. I'm not saying that men don't still go after younger women or anything like that, but I feel like top to bottom, both on the, the masculine side of this movie and frankly, the feminine side of this movie, both of it is just horribly dated. Of the movies we've covered. And even, even movies much older than this, there are some things that uh, you can kind of pinpoint the things that don't hold up. And don't hold up is kind of a dangerous pointed term. But I, I think I, I would tend to agree with you that we're, we're on the two side of a five, like a five number out of five scale. Uh, that there are some things that don't hold up. But there are some interpersonal things between how the ladies communicate. Uh, there are some other things that definitely do. We're not even talking about technology. We're just talking about sort of culture and how it's shifted over 26 years. I would say the movie doesn't hold up as well as several others. I know that I can, and I'm not saying you can't, but I know that I can kind of get back to, oh, this is what it was like for couples, and this is what it was like for women back in the 90s. I'm going to give it a three and a half. I, maybe maybe even as far as a three, seven, five. I think that I, while I absolutely agree with you that a lot of these tropes are can can be dated. I would actually argue that a lot of them are still pretty pretty frequent and still happening in our society today. It's just we're getting a little bit better at hiding it, if you will. I think That's that a good point. I I think that the idea first first and foremost to the idea that your husband's going to leave you for somebody younger. I think that that's something that's going to unfortunately that's just. That's not something that's going to happen to a lot of people, but I think that that's just the idea that men and women both sometimes go chasing the wrong things, and that's never going to stop. Mm -hmm. But I think that uh, particularly looking at the dynamic of Bill, I remember watching Bill. Now, this is uh, Goldie Hawn's character, Elise, her husband. I remember I watched this movie. Last time I watched it was with a bunch of my girlfriends, and we were uh, watching – 
him. He's a movie producer, and he's sitting on the couch, and she they're doing a reading, and she's you know this actress, this B actress, is is reading a script, and she's you know, just saying a couple of lines and Bill all of a sudden is like, oh, that's great. And then she runs into his arms and says, oh, so do you think I'm going to get the part? He's like, absolutely, baby. And we all looked at each other and goes, wow, does that give you like major Harvey Weinstein vibes? Like that just gives me like chills down my back thinking how much that happened all the time. And so I think that in the 90s, kind of this hyper materialism was really glamorized a lot And so I think because of that, looking at it from a lens of 2022, it feels as if it's a little bit dated. And I think another reason perhaps is that in the 90s, there was, I think that calling yourself a housewife was almost a badge of honor. Whereas I think now, because women are moving into this really amazing place where we're slowly really coming into our own as as women and and I think that being a housewife should absolutely be a badge of honor but we're starting to kind of break away from that idea where you can be a housewife and still have an identity and not necessarily be a kept woman Mm -hmm. and I think that in the 90s I think that that was something that very much was prevalent that to be a kept woman was almost like a prize that you've won and I think that that I hope has changed. I certainly hope it has, but but I mean, I would be lying if I said that it's 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 probably still very much happening. I mean, look at Erica Jane. Any Bravo watchers in here? I mean, that happens all the time. Well, I, th- and we still have a long way to go, but in in general, I would say that uh, I, I do agree with. We were probably on that on that slope downward of percentage of people saying that, like, yes, I still think that like the housewife is noble. Like this is the, uh, still a general goal, as opposed to, I think a, a smaller, a smaller group holds that in the same esteem. But we have uh, a, a ton of this information to talk about when we actually discuss the movie, which is going to come after this ad break. Uh, when you tune back in, Lizzie's going to spoil this movie for you. So make sure if you haven't seen the first Wives Club, go back and watch it, the '96 version with Keaton. So we'll see you at the other side of the break. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. And we are back here to talk about the plot of First Wives Club. Here's Lizzie. Take it away. All right. So our story is going to open with four best friends, Elise, Brenda, Annie, and Cynthia, as they graduate college. Four young women staring down their bright futures with the promise to be friends forever. 
Fast forward many years later, and we see that their life has not gone as planned. It appears all four women feel as though they are fighting to keep their head above water as their life whirlpools around them. And it's a realization that's all too hard for Cynthia to bear, and in a devastating decision, she takes her own life. Now, Annie, Elise, and Brenda are reunited at Cynthia's funeral to pay their respects, and they quickly cut through that small talk and realize that all four of them, Cynthia included, had been experiencing marital issues, specifically that their husbands had left them for younger women. Elise, Brenda, and Cynthia have a revelation that although they may not be able to salvage their marriages, that they can fight for something that they had left behind many years ago, a sisterhood. And together, they found the First Wives Club, a group designed to help women who feel tossed aside and reclaim their identity, find solace within their fellow first wife, and in their own words, don't get mad, get everything. Ooh, what a great way to use a line from the movie there. All right, listeners, and specifically all right, fellas, our time of reckoning has come. We've been living high and mighty for too dang long, and that is the actual truth. We cannot be allowed to Leonardo DiCaprio our way through women without <laughs> our proper comeuppance. And First Wives Club has shown the world the way. Now, before we get into the plot, and I want to, um, I do want to spend some more time, like we did before the break, on the general theme here. Uh, this movie is a reaction to a common enough practice, marriage ending because the husband is leaving for a younger woman, to warrant this film essentially making any sense at all. We have to know that this is a thing. Um, so I guess we'll start. What do you have to say about the target audience of this movie and this phenomenon? I have to imagine that the target audience is speaking to wives in general. I imagine that I, I wish that I, become, before coming here, I looked up statistics of how many women had said that their marriage had ended for that reason. But I imagine that it is quite a few, but I myself am in a, thankfully, a happy marriage. Love you, Erin. But I think as a wife, though, I can still speak to what that must feel like. You know, we've, next year we'll celebrate 10 years together and we've got three kids and it's, you you put your heart and soul and everything you have into your family. And I myself am a housewife. So to be able to, have that experience of pouring everything into not just a man but into a life and a family with someone and then to have that crumble because you know a newer younger model came along it's I have to imagine your just whole world would blow up and so I think this movie really speaks to like I was saying earlier I think a fear that a lot of women I imagine feel is, is something that they realize that could happen to anybody it could happen to them it could happen to their friends their neighbor it's it's uh, unfortunately, it's it's a real thing. Isn't that the thing about a movie like this? Or we've already used the word fear, but particularly horror movies, when it really can, it can happen to you, or it could happen to the person sitting right next to you, and it, the impact of it can be so severe. Now, Brian, I could ask you about the same thing, but then again, you and I are not uh, in the the housewife profession. But I, I wanted to see if you had something general about uh, this this movie's theme or something about uh i mean i i i knew right off the bat that i'm not the target audience um <laughs> i'm i'm more in in uh lizzie's ballpark my wife and i've been together for 21 years so i mean we were high school sweethearts so i 
I know I'm and I'm in a very, very, very small percentage minority of, of people in their marriages and that sort of piece, but I, I I have a really rough time with the constant disparagement of husbands in film. Like you you just get tired of seeing what a POS you are in the eyes of Hollywood. Well that that does bring us to this particular movie and one of the things i had wanted to say is that marriages and you know lizzie said this already marriages end all the time all the time i believe we're right at around a toss-up level 50 50 um and what i've always considered about divorce is that divorce has to be the best decision for all parties involved but what we're dealing with with this movie in particular is what we call in the criminal justice system an aggravating factor which is that the marriage didn't end because things aren't working. The marriage ended because of the, to use Lizzie's words, the trading in for a newer, younger model. Um, yes. Which, which is sort of the, the common thread between all of these leading ladies of this movie. So the divorce by itself isn't the cause for the way that we're looking at these men, but this movie slowly eases you into what's going on with these men. Uh, Lizzie, do our men deserve their punishment? And which one of these three really deserves it the most? Oh, I think Aaron, for sure. Now, to be clear, my actual husband's name is Aaron. So (laughs) from this moment on, I'm not talking about my loving husband. But I, um, but no, I think Aaron, 110%. Because... To, to kind of piggyback off of what Brian was saying, because that did kind of tug on my heartstrings. I I think if I had to give this movie a quote from a celebrity that's completely unrelated to this movie, it would be that kind of the takeaway that I would want isn't necessarily that husbands are something to be resented. I would say more that quote that Cher gives in some interview where she's talking about how her mom keeps badgering her about how she needs to marry a young rich man she's like I love men I love men I think men are the coolest but my mom's always telling me that I've got to marry a young rich rich man and I just keep telling her mom I am a young rich man and I think that that's kind of the takeaway at least that I get from this movie in terms of but it just so happens that our protagonists husbands are are dogs and of themselves um but Aaron to answer your question is the worst he sees Annie he wants to he wants to leave Annie he's declared that he says he has commitment issues he sleeps with Annie's therapist and then when he goes to tell her that he's about to officially file for divorce instead of telling Annie that he decides that he wants to get in one last time with Annie thinking that you know making her think that they're going to reconcile And I just, I think to me, he's like the bottom of the barrel, the worst. We're, we're, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to make him worse than the statutory rapist. (laughs) Uh, I mean, hold on. We don't know that yet. We're early on in the movie, but how old is Phoebe? Is Phoebe, I mean, Phoebe. 17. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Well, right, right. All right, right. Just so you know, at some point in time, I just I really want to whittle this down across the board on on the people we're talking about in this movie, because I I would make the statement that 
if a hundred percent, I'd say 98% of the men in this movie are the devil, I would say that 85% of the women in this movie do not come out looking great either. That's fair. With our situations here, I'm thinking that everything is a bit exacerbated by wealth. We have Elise and Bill. Elise, Goldie Hawn, movie star. And Bill, husband. Now, I think this is the one that maybe stands out is that do we have info that Bill was independently wealthy or was successful before his marriage to uh, Elise? I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that they made it sound like he was, he was like nothing. a startup. Yeah, like a startup producer, and she really gave him his shot. Yeah, and that's the one that is different in that sense. Because Aaron, the one who uh, agrees to go to therapy with Annie uh, to go to the same therapist. I believe this is... This was yes. not couples therapy. What was the name of that therapist again? Dr. Leslie Rosen, uh, portrayed by Marsha Gay Harden. And this was the odd thing. I love therapy. I love that our culture embraces therapy now. But let's go back to the 90s. Wasn't this a little more taboo back then? Going to therapy, I believe even just the delivery of the line, we share the same therapist, was a gag in itself. That... I, I love that that was what was going on. They are separated. Aaron and Annie are separated. And the daughter, Chris, is the one who is saying, you're being used by Aaron. And what we learned think- during the movie is that he's he's either continuing an affair with the therapist or that starts mid-movie. Brian, what were you saying? I, um, I want to say that... You know, in mid '90s, I'm thinking this is like ballpark Doctor Katz time, right? So, I would say it's not taboo at this point. It's the fad. Like, you need to go out and get yourself a therapist because that's what everybody's doing at this point. Uh, was now help me out here. Was Doctor Katz one of those like similar to like the over the radio, like sending in letters and like you'd respond? Right. I mean, I think he had his own practice as well, but he was definitely a media. Um, personality as well uh, almost like the the dr phil of psychology or psychiatry i actually think i actually think i i'm coming around that I, I i do kind of remember this being kind of fat like yeah, but i think that's is... why it's brought up so much in media yeah. during this time because mm-hmm. it was such a fad like they're also pointing at the fact that like look at where we are now i think to your credit though dustin i think that therapy in general that i think it's in terms of how the culture defines it is very cyclical like I remember when I was growing up in the early aughts like you didn't talk about that kind of stuff at all and then it kind of made a big resurgence I would say within the last five or ten years so I think there's there tends to be a cyclical nature in how our society views mental health I also think that it's speaking of fads I think it also might be something that only either the middle class or the affluent would do is be able to get involved with a therapist, um, whereas now it's much more available and uh, part of essentially your total health for all people. So we, we have that situation. Now, Aaron is high-powered CEO of an advertising agency, and I don't think, help me out here, I don't think Annie works currently at the start of this movie. I don't think she's working. No, no, she's not. And so... The, the idea is that the therapist is helping Aaron with commitment issues and that the therapist is helping her with self-esteem. You know, and her mom makes the comment. She's like, Annie, 
you have a husband and you have a daughter. You don't need self-esteem. <laughs> right. And, um, but I think there's something, possibly why I chose Aaron, is there's something so triggering about the scene when that ambush with Annie and where both Aaron and the therapist are completely gaslighting her to make it feel like she's, you know, the therapist is like, Annie, look at it this way. Like, it's closure. Now you're free. Ugh, you can be set was, free. And like, it's just everything about it. And then when Aaron is like, you know, this is about us. Well, no, it's actually about you. It's it. The whole conversation just made me feel so gross. And I felt so horrible for Annie because part of her charm as a character is she's so sweet and meek and she yes she is you can very much tell that she just wants to to make the other people around her smile you know later on in the film she's very much the peacemaker of the three and so to watch her just get completely stomped all over just it hurts so bad to see it well i think the movie does a good enough job compared to brian's statement about all husbands which i i think i would generally agree with i don't think we see too many heroic husbands in the relationship, I think it is. I I do know where he's coming from, but I think this movie does a good job in these guys are particularly slimy or slimier as the movie continues. For yes. instance, oh, I'm. I, by the way, I'm not arguing that at all. These guys are gross. These guys are gross. I yeah, tr- truly get into this later. So I'm not. I'm not defending the husbands of this. Film. I didn't think you were. I'm just I didn't saying. Think you were. I just think that you're getting there's there's some jet lag that you get when you're constantly seeing the portrayed this way i think that's really important in speaking to audience here because i also wrote this down that i was going to mention later which is that i am very clearly not the target audience and with this with this movie though there is a in terms of women relying on one another using the interpersonal relationships to gain strength and grow this movie becomes i think more about the sisterhood that lizzie described about how they grow and become better. Annie, the meek one, becomes less meek. We see Brenda, and I can't wait to talk about more about Brenda, but uh, Brenda uh, has uh, a, a cool arc, especially with her son, Jason. And then uh, we've got, our, I guess our closest thing to a train wreck is we have uh, Goldie Hawn's character, Elise, who's got a, a ton of image issues and aging actress issues. And all of these things begin to heal through the catalyst of, and we hadn't really mentioned it yet, but their fourth friend, the one that Lizzie in her summary said, the fourth friend jumps to her death upon just reading a headline. So this this cultural thing of men upgrading to a newer, faster model, even just the notion of it is what leads this seemingly well-to-do living in a great neighborhood you know, she's wearing, I believe, the house dress with a giant fur over it with uh, straight yes. vodka in one hand, a cigarette in the other, living the life, <laughs> looking at the, the young thing on her Nordic track. Right. But she reads the headline, the king finds a new princess, something like that. Um, and that's enough to push her over the edge. So this catalyst serves to help the women grow, I think, more so than it does to hurt the men. Lizzie, would you agree? Yes, I would absolutely agree. And I think that one thing I do wish that they would have expanded a little bit on, you know, that scene where she's overlooking at the, you know, hot blonde on the Nordic track. I think that 
And and hopefully, you know, if they ever made a first wives club too, because you know, in the superhero movies, when you're establishing a character, it's like it's all about the origin, and then the second one's kind of more about. Um, and sometimes you know, they really what, where wanna, we go they now. They really want to hammer down that origin. They'll redo the origin movie <laughs> yes. three times. So if, <laughs> that's right. So if First Wives Club was a superhero movie of, <laughs> of sorts, and in terms of women, you know, this is their origin story. So maybe if they ever came out with a sequel, it could be something where you would invite those twenty-two-year-olds that are, you know, in their spandex on the Nordic track and be like, "Hey, they aren't the enemy. Like, let's all ah, get preach. together and band together and say, like, yes, like you know, maybe if anything." I can give some wisdom of my years of of time and help you from possibly making the same mistake that I did, which I would say if I had to pinpoint what mistake that would be, it would just be allowing somebody else to define you. I think that marriage is absolutely a beautiful way of two people to build a life together. Um, but I think that there's so much power behind understanding who you are as a person and then you grow with that person on a journey together rather than just being a blank canvas for somebody else. And um, I think that it's absolutely about these women being able to come into their own after realizing that that's what they've done for the past 20 years. Yeah, that's been, that has been almost a, a new master status is to be a wife instead of an individual, which we know can coexist. We know that can be a thing and should be. Yeah, yeah, that, that we have. So we, we've actually talked about both Aaron and uh, we've talked about Bill a little bit. But let's get to, to Brenda and Morty. Morty, the uh, electronics king. Brian, I, I know I, I found this to be, I think, the most comedic character, but also there was some really, like, some really cool moments of strength with Brenda. And then I, I just also... I just so happen to love Dan Hedaya as Morty or Morton uh, Cushman. This this arc is kind of fun. This one also in, includes a child. What do you have to say about this particular relationship? I've got blurbs on on each of these duos that they're kind of interlaced in a way. Uh, I let's agree hear with, them. I, I agree with the comedic piece um, that that there's a special brand that happens there. I, I, I really wish I could have turned my head off during this film because like, even the parts that were supposed to be funny were a little horrifying to me. And, but I just, I had just, just these, these kind of harsh points of view on everybody in this film. Uh, there, I think there are like two people that get out of this, this movie, like unscathed. But, you know, if you want to start with Bette Midler's Brenda, we can all be completely sympathetic to a single mom and doubling down with a rich ex-husband who doesn't pay child support. hundred percent. That's all horrible, but it all comes crashing down when she utilizes the very illicit means by which he came by his wealth to double down on it. And eat, and with even more nefarious undertones, actually having, you know, having a conversation of him being whacked by her uncle, uncle Carmine. Yeah. And, and, and it, but you know, instead of going full murder extortion and blackmail will do. And, it also came out kind of anti-Semitic to me because the you know the big financial piece of this you know the fraud and extortion and stuff is the Jewish family, and I'm like, oh my God, what are we doing here? So, and then if all that wasn't bad enough, they appear as if they're the ones that get back to together in the end, and he leaves Sarah Jessica Parker on the side of the road. Now I'm not saying she didn't deserve that, but ah. 
So, so there was, there was that whole story arc and I'm like, this is horrifically illegal. Everything that happened here is, I mean, not the way you handle your redemption. That's, that's, that's like seceding to another circle of hell instead. So there's that. Then you got Goldie Hanselis. So alcoholism, appearance obsession, not the best foot forward that you want to present, but that's, you know, it's, that's where the character was going, but it pales in comparison to the fact that all three of them let a sexual predator go in the end. Like that, at the end of this, I was like, what? So like Scott free. And I'm like, even if he didn't know at the time, that's, that's, that's a deeper seated problem. So then we pop over to Annie who, who probably is the, the, the cleanest of the crew mm-hmm. on her own, but you got to ignore the fact that she's a participant in breaking and entering fraud, theft, all of this, <laughs> this mm-hmm. stuff that's happening around mm-hmm. her so she can get <laughs> her. But, but, but she's got a subsection to her story in too, where you have them setting up this, this, um, this professional woman, this therapist, and they've got her, completely you know she's consorting with a married client completely crushing her professional integrity so i'm like that's not a good view either so i i i I know where this movie set out to be an empowering thing but they trashed a lot of women to get there and you know even after they didn't put a single person through you know criminal jail time where you you got mort and you got from alias victor garber's character bill um yeah and, and then she uh annie fires her husband the addict exact but still they go through this montage at the end of them all cutting them checks right and i'm like what's the continued of extortion that? like i i don't know i just i the whole time i'm sitting there thinking like there's a severity to their plan in terms of um now th- there there's an obvious pain that comes from what our ex-husbands have done um, that exists. Mm-hmm. And then throughout the movie, there's other behavior, I guess we'll say like, like name calling, like infidelity. Uh, there are other, other behaviors that come out. Uh, sometimes these behaviors come through like a proxy, like for instance, Shelly is a fat shamer. Uh, but on the opposite side, Brenda is, uh, you know, because she's younger, she's a fetus or a 12 year old. Uh, why can't you buy her a whole dress? I think what uh, what I'm kind of picking up here is that there's the severity of their plan to get back is it's almost imbalanced uh, and it leaves you sort of questioning like was this was this what they said so frequently was this really justice or was this like when they say this is justice you're like no you really should just call it what is it which is which is revenge and I I'd say it all of that all of that notwithstanding. I'm upset Gil Griffin didn't get anything in the end of this. Like this all started with a friend of theirs committing suicide. If anything, he should have got it worse than everybody else. He doesn't they exist didn't even in the last include, hour. Yeah. yeah, they didn't even include so him. True. I'm like, this dude, this dude started. Your friend's dead. Like you mm-hmm. guys have it bad. Your friend is dead. And you started all of this in her honor but you didn't get one back for her. And this dude, like, <laughs> look, I, I understand I've, I've gone off. I know I've gone off on all, all the other husbands too, but this guy is groping the next woman at the funeral. Yeah. That's like, the, that was a bad uh, one. That was a bad one. Uh, I, I let so out a, it, a, it, an expletive alone 
while I was watching this movie, being like, you don't do that. <laughs> I I think he, I, I honestly think that he, he probably should have gotten it worst of all, just because I'm not saying that, that he is responsible for the death of his ex-wife, because although their lives together ended and there's some grossness in there, and I'm sure he's not a good person, that, you know, I'm not going to say, okay, you're, you're, you know, this is laid right at your feet, but your execution of everything after that's pretty horrible. So the fact that they didn't include him in any vengeance, I was like, all right, now that, that guy needed something like he needed to teach that guy something. Yeah. Agreed. I, at the very end of this, I, I had to stop, take a step back and take a minute to realize, okay, who in this movie did I like? And in the end, Bronson it's, uh, no, Chris uh, Paradis. It's the daughter. Yeah, oh, she's yeah. fun. The daughter. Like I was like, okay, that's the only. Like, sure, she spied on her dad, but she didn't do anything illegal. Oh, right. And she, you know, all she does is pass on information from a place of employment. So, like, in the end of it, I'm like, I'm sure she's happy in whatever percentage you know that that this has happened and that her dad's getting this and whatnot, but. But I was just like, oh, what, what you had, what you had just I, said reminded me of something. And so I've made a little note to myself I want to come back to. But uh, Lizzie, with with this with this sort of like imbalance in how it gets back, I, I'm going to go ahead and say that when I was watching the movie the first time that Uncle Carmine is introduced and there was an idea that there was potentially like a hit that was going to go down on Morty. I was thinking like, yeah, seems right. Their friend died. Like, <laughs> I mean, it. Uh, honestly, you know, we're we're talking about you know varying degrees of bad here. Yes, I, I don't yes, think she are. took a, a too much of a higher road in the end, but it was higher. It was it was higher. You know, just like I said, circles P- of hell. Particularly but. with the yes. the the Cynthia Center for Women, like especially with that, the Cynthia Swan Griffin like Women's Center, uh, that is a. I would say like a tertiary, kind of a secondary result of this plan. I, I don't think the plan started with that kind of goal in mind. But Lizzie, the, the plan, the things coming together and including uh, Bronson Pinchot's character, who has a funny little name that I just can't remember. Um, and then also, oh, I've got it also here. Maggie Smith. Uh, so Duarto Feliz, the... Duarto, Duarto one yes, of, the, one of yes. the ten worst interior decorators of New York City. <laughs> right. and, and and then we also have a, I have to say, criminally underused Gunilla Garson Goldberg, played by Maggie Smith. Like they're just kind of in. Mm-hmm. She looks bored throughout this movie. Um, how does this plan come together for you? You know, we're still talking about plot. Like, are you seeing some of the things that Brian's seeing, or can you add? And I did want to ask you this: sort of a special insight of, well. As a wife, and during this time, and this how this feels is potentially higher. I'm not asking you to justify. I just want you to kind of ha- like have the time for a, a bit of a response. Sure. Yeah. So I think well, anybody that knows me knows that I my kind of mantra in life is who they are won't stop me from being who I am, and that's kind of the way that I try to operate through life. So. I would never respond <laughs> like if something ever were to happen that way, it just I I well I should never say never, but I would try very hard not to operate in a way where I sought out vengeance. But 
I would imagine that just in the same way that you look at a movie like Kill Bill and possibly even Lucky Number Slevin, you know, those are uh, vengeance movies. And I think that there you could absolutely make the argument that there's way more justification for action. But when you look at the fact that it's an act, those are action movies. And so they're going to pull out all the stops mm, yeah. and kind of over-dramatize. Like, you know, looking at, you know, Uma Thurman and all of the different things that she's got to go through in order to actually reach Bill. And I think that, you know, you would kind of argue that the heinous things that the, these husbands or wives are doing to each other is really just more for that comedic effect. I think that... Yes, they're absolutely ter- terrible husbands. And some of the things that they do back, you know, aren't uh, are kind of equally as vile. But I think their way of opening up the the Cynthia Center at the very end, the Crisis Center, to me, I feel like that was kind of the writer's way of wrapping this up with a bow of saying, all right, these ladies had their fun. And now we're going to go ahead and instead of opening up the official First Wives Club, where we exact revenge on these men. Instead, we're going to open it up and allow it to be a crisis center for women and kind of more focus on that sisterhood. So I think overall, I think they tried to kind of push that home, but they definitely had, you know, some naughty fun along the way for sure. The naughty fun, I think, is important to the enjoyment of this movie. Uh, Extremely important. I did find this movie very funny. There was something about, like, how you get back at him. Um, I yes. last year I watched for the first time Runaway Bride with Julia Roberts and Richard Gere. The second time that's a great they movie. I'm going to need you to stop lying on the podcast. That is not a great movie. I love that movie. <laughs> oh my gosh! I think every time that I try a new type of egg, I think about that movie because there was like that whole trip egg. of how she likes her eggs. I love love that movie. You, I bet, I bet though that you like your eggs your way. That you don't like your eggs Aaron's way because Aaron likes his eggs that way. No, Aaron will literally make everyone in the family scrambled eggs and he will specifically make me over easy because he knows that that's how I make it. Wonderful. This guy sounds great. <laughs> yes, uh, he's so, a keeper. <laughs> so I was watching this movie uh, and the way that Julia Roberts and like her friends in this little town get back at Richard Gere at one time is they dye his hair purple. And yes, that's just purple, like, rainbow, rainbow. Which has become quite popular nowadays. But the yes. thing is, that was like, ooh, girl, we got him. <laughs> we aren't dealing with shenaniganry. We're dealing with some of the things that Brian had mentioned. We're dealing with like continuous check writing. One of these guys is essentially financially ruined. Um, one of them is moments away from uh, you know a pair of concrete shoes. You didn't go toss him in the bay, uh, which I thought would have been fun, except for that we see that uh, actually Brenda and Morty kind of reconcile towards the end. Speaking of wreck. Drove me nuts, too. Okay. Drove well, me yes. Well, th- speak That's, on that, Brian. Th- that, that, was, uh, that was the ending of Gone Girl level erroneous. Like, what are you doing? Yes. What, what are you mm-hmm. doing? Like... No, I didn't ah. like that. They, I don't want them getting back together either. I'm with you on that. No. It felt icky. I just didn't feel like lessons were learned hmm. at the end <laughs> of this movie. I, I, I understand the comedic effect piece. That's why I was like, I wish I could have turned my brain off for this because my brain was constantly like, and just that. let the romp happen. No, yeah. don't do that. 
Yeah, and just let it happen. Because obviously, you know, like you said with Lucky Number 11, there's movies where a whole lot of horrible things happen in the name of revenge. But, you know, that's their their angle. I guess I just felt that that this movie had a lot of promise for being a thing of positivity. And it really goes into negative town. I don't like, you know, the ageism that's mm-hmm. rampant throughout it. Um, and when you do that in a comedy, it makes it seem okay. That's fair. So this whole movie makes things seem okay that aren't okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, and maybe I'm just overloading on it because it, it was kind of a, a dousing of cold water watching it. That's why I think it's so dated for me is because I don't think this way. You mm-hmm. know, like when I watched something like this, I was like, oh my God, the, the editors got to look at it and say, mm, that might be taken the wrong way. I think there, there must have been a call uh, either from our director or producer here saying like, how do we have this all encompassing to where like each of these situations is different enough? I, I would say our, our audience isn't just wives. I would say our audience is our 35 to 55 wife demographic. We are looking at the, the, the middle-aged wife. And with this particular audience in mind, there are certain things that be, I think become funnier. I think there are certain things that like, well, we have two characters with kids. We have one character who has, who has his, his new Morty and Shelly. Shelly's the, the one that has, I think, the most screen time as far as the... They're, they're not even married yet. But she's around, and she has a particular role to play, which is sometimes it's quite public that your ex-husband is with someone younger. We have, we have Bill, who has the casting couch moment with Elizabeth Berkley, but we don't really know like if there was infidelity beforehand. So I think with like the, the director or the producer says something like, we need to touch every base, make this uh, well-rounded or to where any of the women in this audience say like, oh, actually that's very much like my situation is very much like a situation that I know. But we mentioned that, or Brian mentioned he didn't like that Brenda and, and Morty got back together at the end. And I think the producer or the director, somebody said like, can we salvage one of these relationships because they must know that there are people in the audience that don't want this to end in harm or pain for anybody. They want it to end with something that resembles a happily ever after. Yeah, I didn't like that they got back together. And I would agree with that. To me, it kind of seemed like some, like maybe an executive just kind of popped into a writer's meeting and was like, hey, we have to make sure there's one reconciliation. You know, that's what the test audience wants. So just figure out how to get one of these couples back together. <laughs> right. And out of the three, I, I guess that's the one you go for because... I suppose. Yeah. I mean, he's like the like, lesser of all of the evils, but I I just... No. I mean, I think all of three of these men, like, I completely agree. Like, you could have... I think the whole point of each of the husbands was to kind of portray this hyperbolic version of like the worst... and version a woman could have of a man like the nastiest scummiest thing that you could have in in terms of using your imagination of what a man could be and do um and so to me to have a reconciliation of that it's almost as if kind of like brian was saying a little bit it makes it It makes it okay yeah like you're just watching well first of all now you're what are you saying you just extorted him kind of just for all of 
uh, you know, they'll wake up and smell the audit. And so now you're saying <laughs> that it'll just be our, our little secret. And sure, yeah. um, so no big deal now. You're going to be publicly I... funding the Women's Whoosh. Center and you're going to be privately funding this First Wives Club. Yes, of which yes. the future of it we, is completely unclear. And I will say I was thrown for a loop. I thought mid-movie that the plan was that, oh, this is going to be like a continuing existing thing and we're going to find other women in situations and like mm-hmm. and like lay down the burn on those other ex-husbands, which we don't get any of that. We just, but, but that's where I think it becomes more about the women themselves in this movie growing, Annie getting a little yes. bit more of a spine. I think we, we see of intervention scenes, maybe one of the better ones I've ever seen, I tend to think that alcoholism is overused as a plot point in movies, but this one it, this one worked for me. I also think that suicide as a driver is also overused, and this one I think pulled it off too. Um, amidst the other things chaotic in this movie, I think I think that they Elise's growth from like I am insecure about my image, and I'm what what's the line she says? You're either a babe, a district attorney, or a Driving Miss Daisy. Driving Miss Daisy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And, yep. And going from that to you know, and uh, you know, let's let's look back at that first lunch after the funeral when I believe Annie orders a Virgin Mary, and then by the time that like you know, wipe cut across the screen, you can bet Elise has had six or seven. Like she's kind of got that lean that the, the, they yes. did a good job of showing that lean. We see her change. I think the biggest thing with with Brenda was uh, she was not particularly heavy, but like this is something that like, oh, this was sort of her self-improvement is that. And I think it would have been fun to see um, her like on the market instead of ending back up with Morty. How I would have loved that is you're in the car, right? With, uh, you've got the POV of Shelly, and Morty and they're fighting over money and things like that. And she's like, I'm not, I'm not your wife. I'm not your ex-wife. I'm not Brenda. Not Brenda. And he just says, no, you're not. And that's kind of that big realization. He gets out, he makes some big spectacle to her of, you know, that kind of love bombing conversation of like, I made uh-huh. a mistake, baby. You're everything I've ever wanted and all the things. And that she just very lovingly and compassionately but also sternly just says you know what it's too late like too much has been done and I think to Brian's point also that he's made earlier that would have been a great redemptive moment for the overall story where you don't necessarily have to have this nasty moment where you would belittle him it would just be more of this moment of you know what like I've kind of I've been waiting for you to have this conversation with me for months now and now that you're sitting here having it with me I realize that this isn't what I want I don't respect you and I now mm-hmm. respect myself enough to realize that and the damage so has been I'm, done yeah yeah like I'm I'm actually really sorry to tell you that but no it's too it's too late and that maybe they can share a cocktail together kind of in, in a way to ended as friends I suppose but that and in my mind that would have been a much more powerful ending rather than being like oh he's nice to me now so I guess I'll take <laughs> right. it back uh-huh. <laughs> so. well and I think of I mean I'm not, not taking away from any of the other three but I think Bette Midler has the range to do something like that and have it be uh, quite cinematic 
I, I wanted to mention that this movie really does shine in its banter. It's short quips, pithy remarks, yes. scathing insults. Um, our women get together after losing touch. They go to the funeral and then to lunch. Um, I think it's at the funeral. Duarto leans over to Brenda and says, like, oh, she looks incredible. She had any work done? And Brenda's response is like, honey, she's a quilt. This is good, right? These little lines. And these are the things that actually had me laughing out loud and had me like, oh, this is this is this is more fun than I thought this movie had going for it. It's the other ex-husband, the one of the woman who committed suicide, Cynthia and Heather Locklear. Uh, They walk through the funeral and I I don't know which one it was. It says, oh, and there goes Vampire Lestat and his Louis. It's like, geez, yes. this, is, this isn't just, like, short quips. This is research. Yeah, you, you, yeah you got to drop, drop some Anne Rice in That's there. That's right. Because uh-huh. I think Interview, the movie, came out two years prior, and then the book was in the, like, yeah, that was, I should read more Anne Rice, honestly. But I think even though we've covered kind of the heavier aspects of this movie, I want to bring up some of these some of these scenes, whether it's the, like, the slightly drunken lunch we have the the scene where they are rem- reminiscing a bit about being like about singing their song. Um, we have, I think, maybe one of the big comedic highlights is Duarto trying to distract Morty and Shelley while the three of them go and raid the office. There's a bunch of great comedic scenes. Brian, do you have a comedic scene or like a funny moment that like, oh, this is I'll actually take this home. I would say it's probably somewhere between the drunken lunch and before they come up with the full blown plan for vengeance i will admit i i'm not i i don't i don't really give credit to plot here but i do think that the dialogue is snappy uh, yeah it's it's one thing that i really did like in this in this film i would say more often than not though i gravitated toward goldie Hawn and victor garber's back and forth than anybody else's just because he was he was easily the weirdest out of all the husbands in terms of you know we had talked about how Annie's husband was so mentally conniving and how he messed with her. I felt like Victor Garber had like a little bit of each person's like he's funding his enterprises based on what Goldie Hawn's character did for him. So that's like Morty, and then he's also got a little bit of that. Hey, come on in. No problem. We didn't just get out out of a thing where where you're gonna have to pay me alimony or uh, palimony and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know he's like friendly and whatnot. So I felt like there's a little bit of that psychological piece there too. So he was. I kind of felt like maybe he was the worst of each. Like just because he had a little bit of each bad guy in him. Yeah. You know, you talk about Gil with like Heather Locklear and stuff. I just. You know, his whole piece with Saved by the Bell. So it just... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then I, you add yeah, on, then God, you add on uh, the stash. I mean, that's... Yeah. Right. So it, it just... I, I just... He's the one that I really needed to see jail time at the end. How about, yeah, it would have uh, been nice if her and Phoebe became... They kind of did become buddies, but not enough to, to team up together. I really think we should spend time together. We've been working on your role. She's like, yeah, I'm thinking streaks around my face. She's a bit vapid. Shelly, I think, is... Is it fair to say needed? Yeah, they didn't... She, Shelly, Shelly's fun. Um, I don't think she's dumb, but I think she's pretending. She's a fraud in terms of the hot couture and the culture. Um, and she knows what she's doing with Morty, um, avoiding that whole big fight by just simply turning on the sultry voice and asking him for help to unzip, unzip her. Unzip me. 
but I think I think she's good, and I, I think uh, having her present on screen is fun. I personally am biased because of Sarah Jessica Parker. Like, I just I find her. I, I get so confused by her sometimes because, like, I sometimes I absolutely love her, and then other times I'm so heartbroken at what a terrible friend Carrie was to all of her friends on Sex in the City that I just feel still so mad at her for just being such a terrible friend that it's That's really hard for me to role. see. That's an impactful really... role when you can't like the actress anymore because of how bad she was on that show. Yes. That had you, a huge it's impact. Really, it's really hard. Yeah, hot take is that Carrie was the worst. So I... Um, <laughs> But it's it's really hard for me to see her in any other role other than Carrie Bradshaw. In terms of Shelley, the character, I feel like you're absolutely right, Dustin. Like she knew what she was doing. She was not this vapid, shallow. Like she was taking meetings with uh, with Maggie Smith's character in order to make sure that she could become high society. You know, she was bidding right. on on the chair and the chaise because Jackie Kennedy had it. You know, she wanted. She wanted and was plotting to live a very certain kind of life. Yes. And to me, if we ever did see a sequel to First Wives Club, I would imagine had she actually gone through with the marriage to Morty, it would have been an interesting turn of events to see her uh, be like, you know, I'm our second wife's allowed and, you know, kind of maybe come knocking on the uh, door yes. and, uh, and having that question of the lesson learned on her part. Or if they're if they're actually a superhero team like you mentioned earlier, and it's like we need reinforcements, and then phew, SJP comes That's right. flying in. That's right. It's like Avengers. But- <laughs> <laughs> it's like Avengers. First Avengers Club. I don't. I don't have any one role that that Sarah Jessica Parker like burned me with, but I she's not someone I've ever been really keen on having in a film. Like I don't really have anything against her. I, I didn't watch Sex in the City, but um, like I I remember watching Striking Distance with Bruce Willis. Uh, she was a, a Pittsburgh River cop. I mean, it's just one of those things where I'm like, oh, it's. So there she is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, 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 <laughs> she was a Sanderson. I don't mean sister. that in a bad that's, way. That's the thing that's I right. think of yeah, first. Yeah, just I I don't know. She's just one of those people that outside of Sex in the City, I just wasn't familiar enough with her cinematography. For her to be anything other than Carrie Bradshaw mm. in a show that I don't watch. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, um, I, I do want to talk more about this movie, but I think the right platform to do it would be in our superlative section. You all ready? Go cool. ready. All right. I want to hear who your MVP of this movie is, Lizzie. So my MVP of the movie is uh, is Annie, Diane Keaton's character. I, To me... In to kind of piggyback off of some points that Brian was making, I just think in a plot where you have a, a lot of different moving parts, some of them you're dealing with people who are, you know, kind of slimy and then other people who are really seeking vengeance. Um, and even just looking at the friendship level, you know, you've got friends that are dealing with some really big issues and kind of trying to forge a sisterhood together. And to me, I just – I think – Annie is so charming and she really elevates the film to a point where I think without her, this would be much more of a black comedy than it is a a true rom-com. Yeah, she's kind of a uh, lightning rod for focusing you in on the growth of the group and then her herself. 
Ryan, who's your MVP? I actually did a bet. Diane Keaton was. The, I also think she showed the most range in the whole film. Uh, she's the most changed by the events that happen. Goldie Hawn's still kind of Goldie Hawn, and and you have uh, Bette Midler getting ready to make the same mistake twice. So. <laughs> I feel like Annie out of everybody is the one that actually took it and, and, and learned the most from it. Yeah. You know, and I, I actually found, uh, I don't, I haven't seen a lot of Diane Keaton movies. I'm not surprising anybody there. I haven't seen a lot of movies. How do I even get on this podcast? That being said, Bette Midler's my MVP. And I think, I think her line delivery is uh, perfect. I think her background, like the Sicilian Jew, like background, I think she probably knew enough people to be like, oh, this is this is exactly how to play this character. Uh, she's very fun. And then the movie also throws you some like surprise emotional uppercuts with her. Like when her son, Jason, tells tells her that Morty just proposed to Shelley. It's one thing to know that the ex-husband is with another younger woman. It's another thing to know that like, oh, it's for real because he proposed. And so I think uh, she, she does a really good job of like, I think Jason says like, you... I, I know that you guys, you must feel sensitive because this just happened. And she has to portray being strong in front of her son mm. when she's devastated. And I thought, I thought that that showed some of her range as well. Let's look at our best supporting actor, Lizzie. You know, I actually put Bed Bendler for my best supporting actor for just about that exact same reason. I think that her, she brings such comedic relief to to the story, you know, just how I feel like Diane Keaton is able to bring this charm and this softness. I think that she's kind of the yin to that yang and she's the one that keeps you laughing and kind of keeps things a little lighter and almost makes it feel, it reminds you in a movie that without comedy would, would, you know, be a very dark movie. I think Bette Midler is kind of the one that really delivers all of those funny one-liners and she's just, she's great. Obviously, you know I back that choice. Brian, who's your best supporter? Uh, I went with Goldie Hawn on this one. I don't think you could have... I, I think you had to have that one famous actor, you know, that, that whole lined piece of this to make this work. Uh, Annie's character is kind of ambiguous in terms of what her skill set is. Um, so, yeah, I, I felt like that... that those two, between her and Annie, I felt like those are the two most necessary pieces to nail for the whole plot to be believable. Yeah, good insight. Uh, mine is, uh, I tipped my hand earlier, uh, I, I like I like Dan Hedaya, and I, and I like the, the Morty character. I think his, some of the things he does, we learn that he's the only one with the background that is uh, actual documented criminal. He's not particularly clever or smart. He just kind of plays uh, someone who's very successful and also just kind of schmuck. Um, but I, I think it's also just because I like him and a whole bunch of stuff. All right, let's go to a hidden gem. Lizzie. I put Jennifer Dendis. She plays Chris, Annie's daughter. And I felt like her character to me holds up so well. And I love the dynamic that she has with, with Annie. And to me, I just... That whole beginning conversation between Annie and Chris, I felt was so charming and endearing. You know, she's coming out to her mom in like such a matter of fact conversation that it's almost kind of just like blown right past, you know? And and I say that in a way of saying that, almost in, in a positive way of saying that Annie, 
just so unconditionally loves and accepts her daughter in every facet of who Chris is as a human being that for her to come out and and say that um, that she's a lesbian, it's just like, well, okay, well then let's let's continue this conversation about uh, about what we're having for breakfast or something. You know, it just it's so um, that relationship. Not a doormat. Yes, it just yes, yeah. it's just it was so cute, and I loved. Uh, and I I mean I can't not mention the most amazing line in the movie. It's I I picked something else from my superlative, but the like That's don't fine. tell dad. I want to wait for a good time. Like Father's Day. Like Christmas, Christmas morning. Day. <laughs> yeah. like that was a good one. <laughs> That's a really good line. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I will say at that sort of opening scene where they're having their conversation, the first thing I was thinking, because I didn't know what I was getting into in this movie, I was thinking like, well, based on the target audience here, if they just write the character as lesbian, then we don't have to worry about a potential like young boyfriend, a college-age boyfriend, or husband or fiance or anything and we don't have to devote any writing time to her aside from what do we know about lesbians and i think that's a very particularly dated thing about this movie is like the depiction of like the lesbian club the gay club how things go um i think we're we have a we have a lot more information on that now and it's portrayed better but it wasn't a knock what you said is absolutely right is no matter what uh annie thinks she's going to be completely accepting without without the master status of doormat coming out. Uh, but I can't comment on every single superlative like that. Otherwise, we'll be here forever. Brian, who's your hidden gem? I went with Timothy Oliphant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Love that guy. He's in it for like two seconds. Yes, he is. I, I, uh, I, uh, my first run through of this, I was like, ah, what's up, man? You look like you're five. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah. Like super young Timothy Oliphant here. So, uh, yeah, I, I jumped on that. There are a lot of cameos in this. Yes. Like, a lot, a lot. So, I feel like it just depends on what your poison is. I was a big fan of Deadwood and Justified, so I went with Timothy Oliphant. But if you're, you know, 90210, I'm sure you can find someone in here. Well, you know, what's funny is that I, right. I know him from Justified as well, but the first thing I thought was like, oh, Agent 47, what are you doing here? Like the Hitman. Oh, right? <laughs> um, yeah, good. Good old the, Hitman series. You know, uh, there are a ton of cameos, so I didn't pick one because they're just great. My hidden gem is is not uh, an actor. It's I think it's really cool that all of the, our named protagonists all use their married names of their former last name or their maiden name, becoming their middle name, and then taking the last name of their husbands. That must have been a decision from the person who wrote the book and I, and I think that was kind of, even with uh, Maggie Smith's character, she's also portrayed in that way. Like, this, these are their full names because that's part of the, uh, it's one, just one detail of the role of housewife, we'll say, is, is the taking of names. And I thought that was kind of, kind of neat to have that be a focus, even though it's not like clearly stated anywhere. All right, this is the tough one, Lizzie. We got to recast someone. You can recast I would recast Victor Garber for sure. That to me, this was the easiest of them all. I really like Victor Garber. To me, he's always going to be the captain of the Titanic, yes, he is. and the he's always going to be Daddy Warbucks and Annie. <laughs> and I just it it really I, so a lot of my friends kind of know that it's it's like a weird trait I suppose of my personality I have a very 
strong kinship to Robin Williams. I love him for whatever reason I associate him with my own dad. That was like, I can't even get into like how crushing his death was for me. But I, um, but I say that to say that like there are a lot of other actors that I have that sweet spot for where just to see them in like a, a role where they play a mean person has like a really big effect on me. It makes me really upset. I felt that way in one hour photo and I feel that way now watching Victor Garber where I'm just like, man, I can't watch you as this like scumbag. Mm -hmm. To me, you're just always going to be the person that takes little orphan Annie to the movies and I just can't do it. So I would replace him. I would say maybe like, you could even do like to bring in Sex and the City, you could do like Mr. Big, easily, done. I was actually checking out the cast of this before I watched it for the first time. And I was like, oh, I don't know what he does, but I hope Victor Garber's, you know, a likable character. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm right. As a superlative. Well, and so I, like you know, I agree with everything you just said about Victor Garber. Uh, for me, the most impactful role was um, uh, Jennifer Garner's dad and alias Oh, yeah, he's sure, yeah. At, at, dude, I, I absolutely loved, you know, if you want to talk about a show about, you know, female empowerment and stuff like that, Alias was magnificent. And, you know, he was, you know, he was a powerful character in that as well. So, you know, that's, I, I hated not liking him. Agreed. It was, it was, he's so likable. So it made it tough. For me, I always see him as the face of wool. He's a 30 Rock character. Advertising agent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Advertising for wool. Oh, who are you recasting then? Uh, all right. So I kind of went off the walls on this one. I, I Just because I had so many issues with the premise of this film. I wanted to see this moved to specifically the entertainment industry. So I was going to kind of go more Goldie Hawn direction. Mm-hmm. And I want to see this done in like Nashville or or LA and I want it to be all musicians. So I was thinking like Cher, Diana Ross and uh, Joan Jett. Whoa. I would watch that. Are all going going off of, you know, some horrible relationship and they run into each other after having met on the set of the voice or I don't, whatever. Anyway, I, I just, I wanted to see something more specifically targeted in, in one, you know, where they all know something about it. I felt like, it's cool that each of them brought something to the table on this, but the serendipitous nature of that is a little too hard to believe. Instead of just so ge- put generic three... New York wealth, let's have it a little more right. close knit. Like, yeah, ha- have it have it all be from the same thing, but also different. You know, you get you know share from you know you know, pop music. You got Diana Ross from Soul, and and then Joan Jett from punk rock. So you know, there it's it's together but different. That's cool. I would see that for sure. I I would buy a ticket to go see that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a cool recast. Mine isn't as cool, but the, the the timing and the age works just about correctly. Instead of Sarah Jessica Parker, I was thinking we have Fran Drescher in that role. Um, <laughs> I think we have more of a New Yorker feel with her. Uh, Fran is from Queens. Um, and her family is Jewish as well. I, I thought this change, if it happened, would be just dynamite on screen. I love her so much. And the age difference is, is eight years, but let's face it, all of these women, the, the ages that they say that they are, are are five years younger than what they typically are. Uh, Sarah Jessica Parker's 30 in this in this movie. So you're saying the Carrie Bradshaw is not New York now? 
I would, I, yeah, that's a fair point. That's she a was fair born point. in Ohio. I think Fran Drescher would be funny just because she's got the big, thick accent. But Carrie Bradshaw prides herself on being a New Yorker. There's several uh, episodes about it where she talks about dating the city, in fact. I oh, my think gosh. that Fran Drescher or like a Queen-style character or maybe even a Long Island-style character is probably seeing a little bit more of the other side of the tracks than Carrie Bradshaw is. Uh, white wealth compared to, you know, like... I think I think there's I think that might be what I'm looking for here. The shore. I'm not going. Well, the shore. Yeah, I'm not go. I'm not hating on Carrie Bradshaw here because I didn't watch that show either. Let's move on to our best shot, Lizzie. What's your best shot of me? Uh, best shot for me is at the tail end where they've had their banquet and it's over. The three women are in their iconic white suits together and they're starting to sing that song like uh, the you don't own me and um brenda you've got brenda on one side and elise on the other and they do the like and they both <laughs> yeah. frame they lean forward and they put their hands together as if to frame diane keaton or annie as she's getting ready to to sing the chorus and to me, that's just, when I think about this movie, that's the number one shot that, that I will always think of is those three women together in their white suits. Particularly that, those outfits, too. I believe that's become, yes. that's become kind of a throwback classic. Oh, I want to do Halloween, but I want to do it with my two best girlfriends. Like, let's do First Wives Club. It's happened all the time. Check it's out. all over TikTok, truly. I mean, I, I tried to, to see how relevant this movie <laughs> still is today. And you, um, one of my friends... Um, Leah, the whole reason why I picked this movie was because my uh, my is good she friend the one Leah with the Destin, haunted car? I was just gonna say she is the one. She's the one that put me on the podcast about the haunted car. Her car herself itself was not haunted, but Leah. Long long story short, she we all got together. She missed a lot of summer from uh, you know COVID and, and different things like that, and so we all decided to band together and have what we called a Leah Day. We all went out and kind of recreated our summer in a day and then ended with a movie. And she wanted to watch First Wife's Club. And so I just said, it's perfect. This is what I'll pick for this, uh, for the podcast. And it's just, it's such a great movie. And So Brian, just, you know who to thank. Yeah. Yep. Hey, right. listen. That's I, right. I, I'm sorry I'm so hard on it. I, like, I, I truly don't mean that in any offense to that. Uh, just, uh, it's just, it was, it was a, a rough ride. Well, of this rough ride, there had to be a best shot. So, what was yours, Brian? I I actually did like the the window uh, washing scene where they finally Very stop fun. and it's right in front of the giant picture window that Pencho had just finished saying. They are the eyes of the apartment. <laughs> the hecticness of that of that scene was very fun. Uh, my best shot is uh, right after their big fight with uh, Elise, in particular, but then they all start, you know hurling daggers at each other. There's a great shot of Goldie Hawn alone in her apartment with the statues and the paintings and the awards. It's like her award room. And she's just kind of slumped to the side. And the just the framing of that shot, there's a lot of kind of become my calling card on the show. There's a lot of despair in that shot. And I thought it was very artistic. So I like that shot. Uh, as far as a, a larger cinematic moment, how about your best scene, Lizzie? The, the scene that's the hardest for me to watch, but also one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when Annie catches Aaron and her therapist in the act together and kind of realizes everything. And she, they're having that big fight 
where they're completely gaslighting her. And then eventually she stops and a little context is that her therapist had just been pushing her to really express her anger, you know, to quit whitewashing everything with just saying, oh, everything's fine. And so finally she has, you know, kind of in a weird backwards way, she ends up having a therapy breakthrough through the experience. And she turns around, she's like, I'm I'm very sorry I ever met you. And I'm sorry that I allowed myself to love you for all those years. And she goes on and on and on and then just screams on the top of her lungs. She's like, I'm sorry. And yeah. she's just, to me, it's peak Diane Keaton. And it's it's so sad, but it's also like very fun to watch. Because again, it's just, it's, it's Diane and all of her glory. Well, and we need to see that pressure release kind of come out. We need to see that kind of emotional outburst. I, I, I like that too. Your best scene. Yes, uh, I like the repossession montage of just Goldie Hawn <laughs> constantly hitting him at like just different parties, just like <laughs> taking stuff. Like, oh, I'm taking that now too. I'm taking this now. And I just, I don't know. I just enjoyed that. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Pretty fun. Uh, you see the the Lambo go up. Uh, my my best scene was uh, when Elise shows up at Brenda's apartment where she'd never been in and uh, apologizes for how she acted. It, it does go back to the. She says, "I don't want to end up like Cynthia." She's completely yes. weeping. All the makeup's gone. Very emotional. I think the scene itself was well done, but it's also something to see in a movie of these two women to reconcile and kind of solve it between themselves. When I, I kind of, I think I would consider Annie to be the main protagonist. So without assistance or interference from like our main hero potentially, that these two can just kind of come together. It's, it was apt. It was welcome. Um, and I thought that's that was really empowering. I, I liked that a lot. Uh, let's look at our wardrobe or makeup. Lizzie, what's your favorite moment there? So I, I already touched on this a little bit, but my my favorite moment are the the white suits that they wear, particularly uh, Goldie Hawn's. You know, they've got Diane Keaton and Bed Midler are both in um, dress suits, you know, matching skirt and blazer sets. And mm-hmm. then you've got... Goldie Hawn is in pants and she's in this like all white leather look. And to me, I just, but I think all of them in their, in their glory, it's just, when you think of First Wives Club like that, those are the, the outfits that I think of versus their amazing, fabulous white outfits. And to me, they hold up now, especially Goldie Hawn's. I, I would wear that. Awesome. Uh, what about you, Brian? I would say that it's not one piece of wardrobe, but I do like the uh, consistent uh, snarky comments about, you know, little black dresses and stuff like that. I It's part of the... I, I, I wouldn't think that there was any point in time where they didn't pertain to them. Does that make sense? Like, I'm sure there was a point in time where they were looking at dresses like that and then, like, ooh. Well, we saw them at, in college age, yeah. Right, right. So I just... You know, they, they just kind of hit a point where they're like, oh, look at this. And I'm just I'm wondering if that's just something everybody hits at a certain time. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe they're wearing that. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, and then during that during that lunch after the funeral, what is what does Elise say? She's like, oh, I wish I could just be easy. I wish I could just let myself go like you two did. Yeah. Oh, that was so terrible. That, that was <laughs> that thing, horrible compliment. comment. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think, well, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, whereas I, I think like the, the 22 year old girls, like they're not the enemy. You know, I think that's kind of a big thing to drive home is that these, these women are, are not something to be hated or feared. It's yeah. they're young and um, 
yes, they're, they're, that youth kind of comes with its own kind of generic, kind of obvious beauty, but I think there's also a lot of beauty in, in aging. And one thing about the wardrobes that I absolutely hated was how horribly frumpy they made Bed Midler look. Mm-hmm. And I do understand the point that they were trying to make there. You know, I think we, we joked about this uh, watching with my girlfriends is saying like, you know, today I know that they're trying to drive the point home that she's a housewife and, you know, she's a mom and a homemaker. And like today they probably have her wearing just like Lululemon and, you know, all sweatpants and kinds of things mm-hmm. now. Uh, similar to what I'm wearing. And so I understand the the point that they're trying to drive home is that she's not fancy. But, oh my gosh, it was hard to look at. So when they finally allowed her to wear clothes that revealed that she actually had a body, it made me so yeah. much happier. Cause it's great. That, I, I was hard to focus when she was talking. I was like, why are you wearing a jean vest right now? You look <laughs> terrible. <laughs> Do better. Do better. Well, I am. I always cheat with this uh, superlative. I like to give a whole bunch of things. For I, I got to say, the, the, the collagen lips... At the beginning, the the heavy Goldie Hawn collagen lips, I was reviled by them. I was made sickened by them. And to be able to see like, oh, finally, like the inflammation went down and she's back to looking (laughs) normal. I was like, thank God. I don't know if I would have made it through the whole movie (laughs) looking at those. I love leopard print. Apparently it's out of fashion and tacky. But I love leopard print and Sarah just. Ooh, it's so. not. It is. I have a. I actually have a very uh, a leopard coat that's very similar to Cynthia's, and I still wear it to this day. Awesome. I, if it's if it's tacky, then I don't want to be classy. You heard it here first. I'm gonna change one thing about this movie, Lizzie. What are you gonna change? I've touched on this a couple of times before, but I would change this us versus them mentality that seems to be you know brian mentioned the ageism that's happening in the movie i would try to break that wall of us versus them that somehow when you crash into the threshold of your 30s everybody in their 20s becomes an enemy i would have liked to see them form and forge relationships with younger women as well and and make it so that it's something for all women and kind of a truly like a woman supporting women so that Women in their 20s that are about to make the same mistakes that they made, that they can perhaps bark some wisdom and some true sisterhood on them as well. Brian, I'm going to jump the line here only because that that is so close to what I had to. When they mentioned that the goal of the first wife club was to go global, I thought we could see something fun. Like these women advocating on behalf of other younger women scorned, other women scorned, in like a fun montage maybe. What we got was the opening of the Cynthia Swan Griffin Women's Center, which is, I guess, objectively the best option, but it's certainly not the most fun option. I think one thing odd about that is it almost it almost sought to like categorize divorces to pursue younger wives in the same box as like more serious abuse, which veers away from the generally playful tone of the movie, as evidenced by the closing dance number and the I have to assume that the book does this better. But uh, I can guarantee you I'm never going to read it. Uh, so, Brian, what's your change one thing? I would have liked to have seen uh, Bill go to jail. <laughs> I, I, I really yeah. – I needed, I needed yeah. jail I, – honestly, I needed jail time for two-thirds of these, you know, these people. <laughs> but I, I, Bill especially. That was so gross. You, you hit the nail on the head with the hammer with the, with the Harvey Weinstein comment. Like maybe mm-hmm. maybe that wouldn't have been my knee jerk reaction, you know, ten years ago. 
it should have been, but maybe, you know, it, it's been exacerbated now by just how much, you know, grotesquery has come out of, of Hollywood based on, on that sort of behavior. Yeah. And, and to even drive that nail even further, I mean, this, this is just one of those productions that has Stephen Collins in it, who it's not even allegations. It's just three separate occasions. It's the reason his career ended is that he, he was known to uh, take advantage of young women. Uh, you can't mm. see him or watch Seventh Heaven anymore without, oh, God, that's just... I know. That's just it's... who you were and what you did. And not even allegations. You did that. Tough. So, yeah, jail time. Not a bad call there. Let's finish with a fun one. Best quote, Lizzie. There's a lot of little barbs in here. What's your best one? From Bette Midler's character. She says, I'm saying this to you with love, compassion, and the spirit of true sisterhood. You are full of it. And I'm... Changing the word not right. so much because there's a little expletive at the word, but uh, at the end there. But I loved that quote. To me, it was funny, but also I am a big believer that if you say something with love, you can pretty much say anything that you that you need to say. And to me, I think you know she was trying to call out Elise in the fact that she did what i think a true friend would need to do which is you know call her out on it but she definitely made it a little funny along the way yeah difficult thing to do to a friend to someone that matters to you to be real uh what's your best quote brian i don't want this to 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 end up being hypocritical cuz i've already said there's a lot of ages in this in this that i didn't really particularly like but i did like it when she said there she is Princess Pelvis. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's not. Um, it's like the delivery. Too. Yeah, Ben yeah. Midler has his like Princess Pelvis. <laughs> I, just, I wasn't expecting it. <laughs> I learned to expect lines from her. She was just just rapid fire all movie. I yeah, loved she's them. amazing. Uh, somehow I didn't pick a Bette Midler line. I picked a Goldie Hawn at least line, which was. Uh, you think that because I'm a movie star that I don't have feelings? Well, you're wrong. I do have feelings. I'm an actress. I have all, all of them. them. Oh, yes. <laughs> One. Word. That's been done a lot on TikTok. That's what um, my uh, my friend Leah, the one I was talking about, she sends me so many different TikTok reels. And uh, uh, so if you've got the time, you should see people re-impersonating uh, all of the different scenes. And that one in particular, Dustin, is redone all the time. Yeah. If I had a ghost in my car, I'd be on TikTok a lot more, I'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's rate this movie. Lizzie, you have the honor. I'm going to give it a 3.5. I think it deserves recognition for being, I think, in a lot of ways, a movie that kind of, at least for me, I can't speak it to the general public, but for me it kind of was the first really fun introduction to a lot of these amazing actresses and the movie when you really look at it from a holistic point of view it's very tongue-in-cheek and it's very fun but it's also just it's an easy fun watch but it's at the end of the day about sisterhood and you get to watch these ace actresses together and it's just a fun if you're looking for an easy fun watch i think this is a good one brian what is your rating for first one I gave this one a two. Um, I'm not the target audience though. So to all of our listeners, take everything I say with a grain of salt for this, because this, this wasn't for me. You know, it's, it's, I, I can recognize, I could have told you in the first five minutes, I was like, 
This, this is, <laughs> I it, it's it's like if someone tried to market me skinny jeans, you know, it's just that's not something that's going to work for me. So, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, I'm I'm going to mirror what you say here. If I was the target audience for this movie, I would give it a four. Hell, maybe even a four point five. I am not the first half. For several moments throughout the second half, I thought there was some novel stuff, but also some content that seemed forced. There are a couple musical transitions, like the, the the answering machines, that don't accomplish anything for me. Kathy Lee Gifford shows up and asks if the reason the idea for the women's center came around because they left they were left by their husbands for younger women. I don't see the relevance there. The plan isn't fully fleshed out because they're not professionals, as if you could be a professional at the thing they're doing. And I ended up looking for, like, what's the culprit here? And I think it's Hugh Wilson, the director. Uh, Things wrapped up tidy, but the wrapping up takes a bit too long, and it doesn't make sense for a lot of us. We talked about it. I already said my piece about alcoholism. I don't think it's normally important for a movie, but it actually works in this one. From all perspectives, the only cause for revenge, and I'm not saying this is wrong, but pursuing a divorce solely for a younger woman is not enough for me. Uh, Maybe in the current day and age, we're expecting more proof that the bad hubbies are worse, that they're worse than that, and that's what the movie meant to show us. In which case, I'm just a product of that expectation. Because of that, the movie does not hold up, and I handed out two stars. But the reason it got to, or specifically for the things that Lizzie said, is that we've got some great actresses on screen, and we've got some laughs. And that was, like I said, I had no expectations. What I got was pretty fun. And that will conclude how we discuss our first Wives Club pick. we got to make another pick for next week. Lizzie, you going to help me out? Let's do it. All right. Three options. Option one, Fright Night from 1985. A teenager discovers that the newcomer in his neighborhood is a vampire, so he turns to an actor in a television horror show for help dealing with the undead. Option two, Hellraiser from 1987. A woman discovers the newly resurrected, partially formed body of her brother-in-law. She starts killing for him to revitalize his body so he can escape the demonic beings that are pursuing him after he escaped their sadistic underworld. Or option three, Return of the Living Dead, 1985. When two bumbling employees at a medical supply warehouse accidentally release a deadly gas into the air, the vapors cause the dead to rise again as zombies. What option are we picking? As I said earlier, I am basic, which means that we're going into (laughs) fall... And so we're just, Halloween is upon us, right? And so what would Halloween be without a classic horror movie? So we got to go Hellraiser. Hellraiser is the pumpkin spice lattes of (laughs) of horror movies. (laughs) Hey, it's a hot milkshake you can drink in the middle of the day. Who says no? Well, Brian, thank you. Lizzie, thank you. Cheers, guys. Thank you. And thank you all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. We invite you to support the show on our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Lizzie? Hags! There aren't enough children in the world to make the young and beautiful.